everybody. This is your host, Aram Akumov, and you're listening to another episode of the Product Innovation Series, uh, where every week we have guests who come on our show, share their stories and wisdom on how to ship a great product. Uh, today, I'm joined by Mike Townsend, Director of Product Design at Order. Mike, thank you for uh, giving some time today and uh, coming on our show. Yeah, absolutely. I'm stoked to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, likewise. So first question I have just for the audience, can you give us a little context in terms on what is order and how does it work? Yeah, so order is uh, at the intersection of fintech operations and procurement. And by providing a guided end-to-end solution that makes the purchase to pay experience easier for everyone. So essentially what that means is that if you are a business, you're spending money on things to operate that business. And there's lots of people involved um, at the beginning of thinking about what do we need from stuff in the break room to, you know, the materials that make the business run um, down to, you know, the, the finance operators and admins that are trying to make sure the company stays within budget and rogue spending is it's kept to a minimum. So what our platform does is it really gives an end-to-end -end experience to everybody within that process. And we've been using jobs to be done to better understand our customers' pain points and needs. And we're really focusing on those on those things that are most important right now for them to operate uh, autonomously and, and with empowerment. Awesome. That's very interesting. Um, your role specifically at Order is in the product design realm. And so we've had a few uh, product designers, product design leaders come on our show. And um, I always love like uh, talking about how you get into the management side of design and what, how that's different from actually being a product designer you know, within a company. So at what point did you decide you wanted to go from being an actual designer to being a, a manager? Yeah. I, uh, okay, so maybe an unusual story for some people, but when I was in high school and I was you know, trying to understand what I wanted to be when I grew up, and I found that I really liked design, especially multimedia design, I had this idea in my head that the, the pinnacle of what I could be in my career is like a creative director at Google. Uh, don't ask me why creative director, don't ask me why Google. I think I had like these dreams of being fed for free all the time and, and sliding down, you know, fireman poles at the office and stuff. But anyway, I just thought that'd be super rad. You know, I get to have this leadership position inside of a company and, and think and talk about design all the time. And, uh, you know, it's almost like I illustrated this postcard of what I thought that was going to be like um, when I got there. And spoiler alert, when I got there, it was very different than what I what I thought as a high schooler. But so I worked my way. You know, um, I was very lucky. I I got an internship when I was a high schooler um, in junior high, actually, at a uh, industrial design company. And there, I, I really got to see product built in a 360 degree you know view, um, from coming up with an idea to handing it off to a 3D illustrator to it being built in the shop that was on site and then back to you know, the core team that I was on that would package it, jingle it, you know, brand it, and then kind of sell it back to the customer. Uh, and so that was fascinating to me and I found that like there was stuff that I really liked about that and there was stuff that I, I didn't. And so what I pursued in school was um, more like on the UX side of the, of the work, um, though I was really into the visual design and UI design of software too. I worked my way up through American Airlines and then in a consultancy for six years. And that's where I became a creative director. Um, but before that, when I was, you know, a senior UX designer, I was, I was put in a lot of positions with a lot of autonomy 
which was great for me. And um, I, I was put in a room in front of CEOs and CTOs, and we we're talking about the strategy of what we're doing. And, and if anybody out there has been an agency before, and you definitely know this yourself, like clients will come to you um, and you, you play a bit of triage at first, right? It's like, hey, let's stop the bleeding. There's obviously something wrong. And that's why you're looking outside your organization. Um, but then we typically found it like through a little bit of research that there's this, um, there's this work that's being done to figure out like, oh, these are just symptoms. There's like an actual root problem here that we need to solve. And I started to kind of lean more into that role um, as a senior. And then I was, I was seeing some great examples of my company of what a creative director was and what somebody in like a manager position would do. And I wanted to start taking that off their plates. And that gave me the opportunity to train under one and move to Austin where I am now. And, uh, and then when it was time for me to take over the reins, I had a existential crisis. <laughs> I suddenly realized I don't make anything, you know, anymore. I'm I'm not the the contributor. I don't I don't design software. And it took me a while to come to the conclusion that I'm no longer designing software. I'm I'm, I'm helping to design people and their behaviors mm -hmm. and guide them through the ways that they think of, through problems and do things. And um, it took a little while for me to settle into that to feel very comfortable. It took some great mentorship from folks. It took some great books, um, and, uh, and and yeah, that's kind of my story and like how I landed there, and uh, and some of the some of the interesting things that I had to do to, to kind of get comfortable with it. Mm -hmm. And so, what was uh, what was your biggest kind of uh, reality check? You know, when you first became a manager um, with your first team that you had to kind of go through from an experience standpoint. Yeah. Um, I had a lot of interesting realizations when I first became a design manager. One is uh, creatives are very unique compared to other people in an industry or in a company. Um, they have different needs for managers. Uh, they um, have different uh, like superpowers and shortcomings. Uh, for instance, like you can't just turn creativity on like a tap. Sometimes it just it, it happens and it might happen at 2 a.m and uh, you shoot up out of bed, I, I've done this before, and work furiously to try to capture that moment. And then nine o'clock comes around, it's time for stand-up, and there's no energy left, and you're like, I'd rather just go back to sleep. And, and some people who are working closely with creators might find that it's really you know, uh, aggravating or, or confusing, or, you know, uh, but it's, uh, it's interesting. It's, I think it's important for design managers to go in that like eyes wide open and understand like that's a thing and embrace it as much as they can and start to help build a culture around um, folks understanding that yes even though product design is a lot of science it is still very much art as well and there is that like very heavy creative component some other things that i i realized that i didn't really think about before is how important it is to not stifle creativity by injecting your idea from top down um, really, the leader-leader uh, method is, is best, especially with creatives, because it gives them the autonomy to do that divergent uh, thinking that we all know works, you know, and then um, help guide them through the converging part of that uh, to bring their, their ideas to life. And if you, if you start to direct ideas too early, what you can find is a team shutting down or, or not being as innovative as they could or, or ideas just not making it to you know, the whiteboard. Mm -hmm. And uh, 
One thing you mentioned when we spoke last time was that the biggest mistake anybody can make is the only path forward maybe in a design system is that in the design you know path is that you got to become a manager mm. as a as a way to climb ranks. Let's talk about that. Like, what what is that? What do you mean by that? And also, how do you as a manager now identify if somebody needs to go into management versus like the other path? Yeah. Yeah, there is, I've heard a lot um, that there is this common idea that in order for me to grow in my position and to get more money and more clout or more responsibility, I have to become a people manager. And honestly, some of the best designers I've ever worked for have made and will make or would make horrible managers, you know, mm-hmm. um, there is, there is, there are principal routes and I think they, they exist in almost every company I've ever worked at. And, um, the idea of them, I think are in a place now that are pretty solidified in our industry, that it, it is a, a, a perfect choice for people who don't identify with being a people manager. And the reason I think that it's so important for, for folks to think about like, what do I really like what, what makes me happy is, um, like I said earlier, I had to really, I struggled with giving up my ability to be the individual contributor, somebody who, um, really gets into the details and still produces creative work. Uh, that goes away fairly quickly, um, when you become a people manager and then it just fades even faster as, as you move up and uh, up that ladder. So, yeah, is it is it your heart is still in the work, but you you want more responsibility in in leading teams maybe or helping designers get better? Like you can do that through mentorship and not have the responsibility of the administrative work that comes with being a manager or the responsibility of your performance being graded off of other people's performance. And that's another big thing that some people don't think about before they become a design manager is it's no longer about what you were able to do, whatever you were able to deliver or produce. Now it's about what your team was able to do and produce. And that really is the grade of, of your importance of the organization. Mm-hmm. What, what gets you, um, always like asking this question to leaders, what gets you most excited about being a people manager? Um, seeing, seeing my reports be successful. Um, I, I think the L. David Marquette, uh, the author of Turn the Ship Around, I think defines leader the best, and I'm, I'm going to screw it up because I haven't memorized it, but it's, it's embedding um, greatness into the people that you lead, um, and it will make them leaders through that. And so seeing that greatness come from the hard work of your mentorship and your guidance and your trust and, and giving folks opportunity and, and being in their corner and saying, Hey, it's okay. If you're scared, if you've never done this before, um, it's all right. If you haven't ventured into this sort of, uh, like realm, um, I'm here to back you up. And if you fail, like we'll work through it. And so knowing that like all that time and energy put into like people, and then watching them succeed, that's definitely the best, you know? And it's not a far cry from what I used to do with products, you know? It put all this energy and love into this product and you put it out in the world and you see users use it and, and they love it and it's successful and, and that's what gets you out of bed every morning, I think for pretty much any product person I've ever met. Uh, and it's, you know, it's very similar. Again, I think it's just, you're putting all that love and energy into people and you're watching them, you know, find product market fit in their life, you know, which is yeah. pretty great. Uh, have you had any, uh, um, 
product designers get promoted or move into oh, a yeah. manager role that uh, you saw them flourish in or ones that didn't? Yeah, I, I have. And um, I've definitely seen seen ones that didn't. And, you know, this reminds me of uh, a time where I was working at an organization and I had a, a really strong lead designer who didn't really know what path they wanted to go. They were interested in people management. They were also interested in the principal path. And, and I said, well, let's run an experiment. You know, let's see how it goes. How about you shadow me for a quarter and you can see how I operate with, with your potential reports mm. that I will give mm. you. And I started small, two people, right? Let's, if you can handle two people and you like the, the, um, uh, the excitement of kind of like having to context switch between two different personalities, then let's give it a shot. I will say though, in our industry, it's a hard, it's a hard transition to make. I will say in our industry, it, it's a hard uh, transition to make. And that is because there is this middle period where you are a individual contributor learning to be a people manager. And most of the time you can't give up that work that you're responsible for, but you're wanting to take on more responsibility of those, uh, those folks that you would hope to report to you. And that was part of the deal. It's like, Hey, you got to run, you still got to run design on, on your projects. But here you have this extra responsibility. Let's see how it goes. Uh, the, the conclusion ended up that he loved working with them, but he really didn't like the administrative side of it. You know, that was just not like doing the, like the reviews and being responsible for like the goal setting stuff and, and all that was just not his jam, you know? And uh, he really, we had an honest conversation. He was like, I don't, I don't love this. And I said, well, if you don't love it, I don't love it. Let's, let's go do something that we love, you know? No, no, it's amazing. Um, we've actually just had one of our product designers try to be a product manager as an attempt. Yeah. And they realized that very quickly they, they didn't like yeah. it that much. So they're like, I want to just do design. This is way too much time in spreadsheets. <laughs> I didn't realize it was going to be this much time uh, calculating. Uh, yeah. It's true. It's true. Very true. Um, I want to jump into another topic about y you and, and, and order. So if I recall correctly, when you joined order, it was still a pretty small team, right? Mm, yeah, no team. <laughs> I think no we team, had a, right? We had a design contractor. Yeah, and we didn't, um, shoot, didn't we even have a PM? You know, it was, it was just me, the VP of product, and, and we, were, we were in build mode. You know, we got to get people to do stuff or else they're going to look to us and say, hey, go do, go do some stuff, right? Yeah. And so... You had this contractor, what, ma what made you guys flip the switch to starting to build out your own design team internally? How did you do it? What was like difficult about it? Yeah. Uh, well, the, the, the reason is obvious, right? We, we needed a team that was embedded in the day-to-day -day that were fully dedicated to what we were building. They needed to build context quickly and they, they needed to become experts. Um, I don't think there was a central organization at the company at that time that knew everything that was going on with the business and the product. And we needed to be that, right? Because if we're going to innovate it, we got to know exactly how our dog food is made and we got to know who's eating our dog food mm -hmm. or hopefully potentially eating our dog food, right? So uh, Andrew, the VP of product and I, um, we got together and talked about like, okay, what kind of culture, what kind of team do we want? Um, how do we want to scale this? A lot of my ideas at the beginning were based off of Pete Merholtz's book, Org Design for Design Orgs, 
and I really like you know his point of view on how teams should be structured. I've seen teams structured other ways. You know, at, at the you have the agency model where you have a, a pool of designers, you pull them in for a project when you need them, you put them back, or the embedded model where you have one designer with one PM with one engineering lead and a group of engineers, and they're thinking about a vertical and they're they're executing against that. And there's pros and cons there. It's a great book for anybody who's interested. It's 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 very well written, but essentially it explains that you know there's a breakdown in both of those things. So there is the ability to have a hybrid model, and the way that I sort of the lens that I looked at that that book was I would love to have designers that were focused on and dedicated to jobs to be done. So even if someone's jobs to be done within our customer base spanned multiple different features, multiple different screens, multiple different pods or squads or whatever you want to call your execution team. Um, they stay with the jobs to be done. That means they could work with multiple PMs and multiple engineering leads and all that kind of stuff, but their focus is, is deep and broad on something that is very isolated. And it could be multiple personas that have to share that same jobs to be done too, but what's most important is they're really fixated and just fascinated on what is that job and how can we do the best at being hired for that job, right? Mm -hmm. and, and that's how I sought out to, to structure the team was to, uh, and, and in order to do that, we need to know what our users' jobs to be done were. And so we didn't have that information, right? So it was a theory at first. It's okay, let's hire the people and then we'll go figure out what those jobs to be done are. And in order for us to do that, we knew early on we needed a researcher. So we found um, a, a fantastic researcher who came from 12 years academia, five years at Facebook. Um, and the, one of the first things um, we started targeting was how can we understand who our users are, um, fundamentally what they do day to day, with order or without order, and then how can we draw a box around that job to be done, and then how can we start putting our designers towards that? Yeah, interesting. And so. Did you um, you hire that user researcher first to get the jobs to be done figured out first, and then you brought on like the rest of the design team? So I I rapidly built a team in four months. So okay. I had um, two product designers, one um, user researcher, and one um, visual designer on the marketing side. So hmm. I'm actually uh, focused on design entirely across product and marketing. Um, with a, with a user researcher, uh, you know, working across you know the organization to help us understand what, what are we doing and why are we doing it. What was the biggest challenge of scaling? Because bringing on that type of team in four months is is a feat. Um, yeah. You know how how do you get them to gel, connect really quickly so that everybody's aligned in terms of what their responsibilities and roles are? It's. It's really important to have very clear expectations at the beginning written down that you and, and leadership agrees on. And so there was a lot of work done between Andrew and I to kind of state what we wanted, um, how we wanted to operate, what was our, our vision. And we even dug into some of our like early principles of, of you know what we might be about, knowing that they were going to change and evolve as we brought people in. And, and that's great. You know, I wanted to have a nice foundation. So we could throw that foundation away when the actual people were in place and they're like, actually, based on our personality types, we like to do this, you know? And that's the other thing I looked at, who are we bringing in? What are their personalities? What is their background? What are they really into? Um, you know, what, what kind of experience have they had doing different things? So I found a super, you know, I actually brought on from a previous team that I had built, 
um, a really strong designer who um, ex excels at design systems, but is very much a product thinker. And then I, I brought on um, a close friend of mine who has sort of, I, I, we've been in multiple business situations before in the past. Uh, he came from Amazon and then previous, or sorry, Zillow and then previous to that Amazon. So he had a great wealth of, of experience in search and uh, e-commerce and, and things like that. And that felt right. That felt like a core team. Uh, and, and then of course with a, with a researcher with the breadth of knowledge of the one that we hired, um, I felt like we had like a really good design thinking community now. Um, and then I started asking them, what do you need that you don't have? Mm -hmm. You know, uh, but I had to think inward quick, like first, like if I was on this team, if I was joining, what would I need? Right. I need to be excited about the problem. I need to be excited about the team. Uh, I need to be excited about the future. Right. And I need to be challenged and the challenge is definitely there, but it's important how you frame that challenge when you're talking to folks, because it can sometimes be overwhelming when you're on a startup. No, for sure. And just related to challenges, um, wanted to get your thoughts on something like in the past, whether it's with our own designers or, you know, clients that we work with, I come across this, this, even though they're super talented designers, they have this fear or this concept of imposter syndrome. Um, and when I see their work, I mean, this is great work. Like, why would you feel you're not, uh, why would you feel you're an imposter? Like you did great work, great thinking in terms of the end result. So what's, what's the problem? And I, I speak to a lot of designers and I'm like, this comes up a, a lot. I'm like, I wanted to get your opinion on why do you think this happens? Yeah, I've had some time to think about this and I wish I could recall off the top of my head what Adam Grant said about this. Cause I, I just recently saw um, him post something about imposter syndrome, but my, my own personal feeling is that there's, there's not really imposter syndrome, right? We, I don't think we feel like imposters. I think that we're all feeling like we are out of our depth a bit, mm. you know? And that's because building software is really hard. It's very, very complicated. It's complex, especially when you're coming in maybe to a code base that has already been built or the, the mountain of anxiety there is about building something fresh, brand new. And all these choices you have to make that could cost you a lot of money in the future if you don't make the right ones. And designers, most of the ones that I've met have become designers because they love design, right? And now they're in a business situation in which they have to think about so many other constraints um, that remove them pretty far from their comfort zone of loving design. Hmm. And I think you could frame it as like, oh, well, you feel like an imposter in this situation. I don't think that's a great way of saying it. I think it's you feel like you are in a place where you aren't fully educated to navigate, which is a perfectly healthy place to be. You know, if you're in the right environment with the right managers um, and in the right company culture, it might feel like imposter syndrome if you're a shitty culture. Right, because you're you're being expected to rise to some occasion that, you know, everyone expects you to, um, without like clear expectations around like what that looks like. Kind of related question. I wanted to get your thoughts uh, about objectivity of design because 
you know, working with different designers on projects, I realized that some people see things very differently than, than others. And it's sometimes a, a debate or like, you know, uh, uh, a discussion that needs to happen in terms of okay well like this is best practice and here's why or whatever there's research backing it or like sometimes ui elements like can be debated is it real does this concept really exist that there is a objectivity of design or, or not yeah. i wanted to get your thoughts I hope so, because there's an entire career based around it called user research. <laughs> um, and I think they firmly sit in the product design realm, honestly. Uh, and I sometimes see them as designers themselves. Uh, so yeah, I think there is objectivity and it's, it's called data, you know, qualitative and quantitative data that helps you guide the decisions you make. Now that's not going to answer everything. And I, and I don't think there's a sil silver bullet, holy grail for, you know, all the decisions you're going to make as a designer. Um, but the way that I looked at it at um, the previous organization I was at, we actually had some, some values, some principles around this, is um, data decisions first, expertise second, opinions last, and hopefully you never have to make an opinion. Mm. So you hire really smart, talented designers with a rich background in the understanding of fundamentally what makes great design, right? You could say it stemmed from the golden ratio, which is a very data-based, you know, uh, idea, um, or sorry, concept, is spacing matters, right? And weight matters, contrast matters, all of these things, like how the human brain is set up to react to those things. And so if you have great data to make your decisions off of, what are my users' needs? What, are the, what is their behavior? And what do humans react to when it comes to design? The rest of it um, could be based off of you know, personal taste, but it's such a small amount that I think that's what you're seeing when you look at three great products next to each other. They're all really great, but they look different, and that's mm -hmm. okay. You know, you could maybe even swap the logos and the colors and the stuff between them, and it would still be super great. Um, because they were built on a foundation of just really great design concepts and data-driven decisions. Okay. Um, last question I have before we jump into the fireside format, or maybe two. Okay. It's about KPIs and metrics. Um, I've always had a hard time figuring out how, how do we create great uh, ways to track, you know, metrics when it comes to design. Um, yeah. Any anything you could share on that? <laughs> so, in the not too far past, I think it's about Q two. I was asked a similar question by my CEO and and chief of staff. They said, "Should design have OKRs?" My gut was no, and I wanted to check that for a second before I wrote my long email. And I I, uh, I reached out to the. Um, the uh, Envision, Envision Leadership Forum, which I'm a part of. And I, I just asked in there, I said, what do you think about this question? Should design have OKRs? Is there anybody operating under design-specific OKRs? And um, it, it blew up, right? It was a pretty big conversation. There's a lot of really great thinkers out there about like this, this particular subject. Um, Tanner Christensen, for one, weighed in, or uh, Ryan Rumsey, I think he's writing a whole book about this right now. Uh, but the consensus was like what I thought, what my original opinion was, is no, design 
is so embedded in what product and engineering is doing, at least when it comes to product design function, um, that uh, the OKRs need to be the same. Hmm. And that you can't measure design on its own without the execution of the others. Now, if you're talking about more traditional design, maybe it's marketing design. I mean, even marketing design is so reliant on other types of, of mechanisms going on, like your designs coming to fruition, how much vision, you know, how much um, share of voice they, they're, they're having. Like, so, yeah, I, I'll stick with the simple answer of no. No. <laughs> so then my follow-up question would be, if the metric is shared with, say, product, um, have you had ever any designers who weren't on board of having, say, their work being uh, analyzed against something that is being run by the product team? That's a good question. Essentially, what I think you're, what I, what I hear you asking is, has there been misalignment between design and product when it comes to what their priorities and goals are for the yeah. quarter or whatever? Better, better way of phrasing it. Thank you. Yeah, and um, sure, I think so. I think I've, I've come across that, and and that's a dysfunctional team, right? And and it's not their fault. Is maybe they're just now forming, right? And mm -hmm. they're just now starting to understand how to work with each other and what the product is, right? I think I might've seen some of that at the very beginning in order when we were trying to figure out what the most important thing to do was. Um, but as the team goes through the five stages, um, you know, they go from forming to norming, I think that like that starts to fizzle away and there's more alignment They're like, oh yeah, we're all running in the same direction. We want, we want to increase our revenue or we want to increase monthly after users or, or something like that, right? So I, I do think that in some cases, we've seen the benefit of having design-specific project objectives and KRs. For instance, we are really working towards a design system right now. And in order to kind of track how far along we are there, I think it's sort of a, what we call a build goal, where you have like these these build KRs. Where it's like, how many of these things did you get done in a quarter, right? Did we get mm -hmm. all of our foundational components defined in Figma and also in Storyboard? Cool, we can say that we you know completed that KR. And we're going to keep the objective of build a badass design system, right? But the KRs will change over quarters, and so you eventually get out of these build goal metrics where it's like, did you do the thing? Did you build the thing? Yes. Cool. Move on. Did you build the thing? Yes. Cool. Move on to now that you've built the thing, is it performing? How much of the site has adopted the design system? Is the design system performing better than the old system to the, to the baseline, you know, measurements, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. All right. Uh, thank you. Last question I have is what design lessons or principles throughout your career do you keep coming back to? Yeah, um, the one that guides me the most is is the idea of the leader leader method, which is really instill the um, the belief and the trust and the autonomy into your team so that they can be leaders within their own areas of focus. If you are able to do that, you don't have to be up twenty four seven driving the ship yourself. 
you can trust that there are all of these folks who are doing the things that they do great. Now, that doesn't mean that you don't learn how it's done, right? Um, I would never ask somebody to go off and perform something and then me be on the hook to measure how well they're performing at it if I didn't know what it was, right? So uh, if, if you're on a submarine and somebody's in the engine room, um, I would want to actually know how that job is performed, at least at a, at a level of understanding, so that I know if it's if it's going well or not. The last thing I want to do is is be in that engine room with them and say, oh, press that button, press this thing, you know, whatever. It's like, no, I don't have time for that. I got I got a ship to 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 run, you know. I got a strategy to think of. So um, yeah, leader leader is is one of those things that I've I've constantly come back to, and I've read the book Turn the Ship Around every year and every year it, it says something different to me because of the different position that I might be in. Um, the second one is production over perfection. I think as designers, as creatives, we're not happy until something is perfect. And that's just our creative brain, you know? And there's a perfect place for that when you're painting or when you're writing music or recording music or, um, or something else that is is going to have a, a, a moment in time of delivery. But the, the craziest thing about software is it's so iterative and it's changing every second that you always have a chance to, to form it and make it better. And so you'll never actually get to 100%. It's an impossible goal to, 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 to capture. So you really need to um, focus on like 80% is, is where I like to be. And, and constantly think production over perfection. It's much more uh, important for us to have it out there and learn from it than to try to you know polish it and make it great. Amazing. And then my last one is be curious, be vulnerable, be humble, and be okay with being wrong. And I think there's a lot of young leaders out there or leaders who are just becoming leaders um, that think they always have to be right. And let me tell you, I'm hardly ever right. And I'm perfectly fine with that because it means I'm surrounded by very smart people and I hired the right team. That's so true. I, my kind of approach is always try to hire somebody smarter than me. So it's been yeah. working out okay so far. Um, <laughs> all right, fireside format. A couple of questions. It's a question and answer. Try to try to keep it uh, short. First question is: How do you ask better questions in product design? Illustrate them. Okay. It's your superpower. Illustrate them. Okay. What have you become better at saying no to over the years as a product design leader? Um, opinions from other people. <laughs> okay. Um, I'd love to ask more about that. Okay. If you, if you could only work two hours per week, what would you want to spend those two hours on? Uh, yeah. I, I would want to be an, an Austin tour guide. <laughs> what about related to uh, uh, what you're doing? <laughs> oh, okay. So you're talking about within design. Like, I have this yeah, just give me a bunch of money and said, you only have to work uh, two hours a day to do this. Okay. Next. Yeah, if you, were, if you were to spend two hours a day, if you, were, if you only had two hours per week to work on what you're doing right now, what would you want to spend those two hours on? I think the first hour would be our amazing like design sync meeting where we, we all get together and show our designs and go through a critique and talk about that. And the second hour would be the, the strategic vision conversations with exec about where, where can we take this business? Uh, where can we make a real impact? Okay. 
Uh, last question. Is there a controversial view you hold in product design? Yeah, I, I yes. I think humanity is, is pigeonholed, held by uh, this technology that we're using today. Um, the keyboard, the mouse, the desktop, it's all so far from an extension of what we really need, which is physical objects and touch. And so what we're working on right now is totally throwaway work. And I think what's coming in the future is going to be far more tactile and far more engaging. Um, and we'll look back and be like, keyboards and mice and, and, and screens in front of us are so silly. Awesome. I don't know how controversial that is, you know, like, you know, no, it's true. Facebook or, or sorry, Meta is, is, is betting the farm on it right now. So maybe not yeah. that controversial, but yeah, they are. And I really hope it pans out for them because I have some stock investments in that company. <laughs> so I really hope this bet in, in the metaverse pays off for them because there's a lot of doubters out there. Uh, that's for sure. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and uh, I love to, whenever there's a, there's a doubter, I always ask them, I was like, so have you used VR before? Have you ever yeah. you own a VR system? Because, like, I don't know, it's pretty compelling. Yeah, exactly. Cool. It, is, it is. Awesome. Um, Mike, this was great. Thank you so much for coming on and for your time. And always want to shout out to all of our listeners. Um, if you're not subscribed yet to our show, please do. Um, there's lots of great new exciting episodes coming your way and you'll find all the details of the episode of this one in the show notes as always so until next time thank you again Mike yeah thank you appreciate it